Good morning. It is so good to be, good to be back from South Korea, where coronavirus created a nationwide paranoia. I was a beneficiary of the coronavirus paranoia that everywhere I went was less crowded and I could finish my business faster than usual. South Koreans, including Christians, have a super phobia about coronavirus. They avoid anyone who recently visited China. They even petitioned the government to block all entries from China. My brother-in-law serves a mega church in Busan as the executive associate pastor in charge of several ethnic international ministry and the church leadership council asked him to order his Chinese assistant pastor, a young seminarian, not to come to church for two weeks because he just visited his family in China. He's not a sick at all. That reminds me of the early Christians' response to pandem pandem uh, uh, pandemics in their times. It is a well-known fact that several times when an epidemic broke out in the Roman Empire, people panicked, but Christians thrived. You know, rich people in Roman Empire quickly deserted their home and moved to a villa outside, some nice, you know, second home and countryside. Majority of people who couldn't get away, they abandoned their sick family members in the street in order to prevent any contagion. In contrast, early Christians selflessly took care not only of their own family members, but also sick neighbors and even strangers. There was an even special group of monks and Christians known as Parabolani. Parabolani literally means those who are thrown next to the sick people to take care. They're the reckless people for the sake of love. Their fearless sacrificial love demonstrated power of the gospel in every epidemic in Roman Empire and is resulted in expansion of God's kingdom. How far we have fallen from the norm of our early Christian faith and life. Jamie told me some of you wondered whether I should be quarantined. <laughs> Here I am. I'm safe to touch. I want to tell you an important truth about the true, real fear. What we should fear more than any virus in the world is a disobedience to God and sin. We need to recognize that sin is worse than any virus. For its infection and destruction is far more devastating. Look at Venezuela. Look at North Korea. Look at Syria. Sin, the human disaster, is worse than any natural physical disaster. In the story of Jonah, last week in chapter 1, we saw that Jonah's disobedience brought a sudden storm that almost killed everyone in the ship. And this is a fact. My sin affects others. My disobedience to God brings a storm to, not only to me, but those around me. So can you all say, my sin affects everyone? My sin affects everyone. Let's say it one more time. 
My sin affects everyone. My you know, sin affects everyone. On the same note, my faith, my strength, bless everyone around me too. Now, how does God deal with the disobedient children and prodigal prophet like Jonah? God's remedy to disobedience is suffering. Okay, before I go further in suffering, I have to make a clear, we have to, I have, you have to know one caveat. Not everybody suffers is sinner. Okay? Some righteous people like Jesus and Paul, they also suffer for glory of God. So not everybody suffers is a sinner. But sin always brings suffering. Sin always brings suffering. Romans 6.23 said, wages of sin is a death. Yes, suffering is a God's treatment for stubborn and stiff-necked people. Last week, we saw God hurling a storm to Jonah in his runaway voyage. Today, we will see God sending a, a great fish to swallow Jonah and keep him in his stomach for three days and three nights. Here in the, valley, in the belly of a fish, Jonah sang a song of a thanksgiving or in our translation NIV, the grateful praise. Ironically, suffering brought the best out of Jonah so far in this book. Jonah in chapter 2 is a Jonah at best. And, um, in, you know, uh, paradoxically, he was in the valley of the fish or midst of the suffering. So suffering is not all bad. Suffering can do some good, good, some real good things to us or our souls. Today we will learn how suffering can be God's healing to us. What blessings God can give us through suffering. I want to talk about three blessings. And I want to tell you, you don't have to necessarily suffer to experience these blessings. So when you hear these blessings, I want you to examine yourself and to see the Lord, let me have those blessings. Amen? With that, let's read a passage today. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, to the end of chapter 2. Let's brothers and sisters read a responsibility. So brothers, we'll read first. Here we go. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the valley of the fish three days and three nights. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I call for help, and you listen to my cry. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. To the roots of the mountain I sank down, the earth beneath the barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Let's together, read together. And the Lord commanded a fish, a vomited Jonah, onto dry land. The first and foremost blessing that suffering brings to us 
that it makes us seek God. It makes us seek God. Suffering awakens prayer. Suffering awakens prayer. Crisis makes everyone a prayer maker. Like the saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. In a war trench where the soldiers see the bliss uh, flying over and the bombs exploding near, nobody has to tell them to pray to God. Everyone is automatically on their knees to call whatever higher power they believe. Just like those sailors in chapter 1 pray to their individual deities. It is a human instinct to seek God in suffering. When did Jonah begin to pray? If you remember chapter 1, captain of the ship scolded Jonah for not praying. Verse 6, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your, call on your God. You know, Jonah didn't pray even in the storm. But now, when he entered in the belly of the fish, he began to pray first time in the story. And he said, first thing came out of my, his mouth was, in my distress, in my distress, in my distress, I called to the Lord. And then second time he called, in my distress, he called it what? From deep in the realm of the dead. Deep in the realm of the dead. In Hebrew text, the realm of dead is a shehol. Shehol. Shehol is similar to what Greeks called Hades. It's not exactly hell, but it's definitely a place that you don't want to go after death. It is an undesirable place of a punishment and separation from the living. It is the opposite of a paradise. <laughs> Simply put, it is a place of hopelessness and helplessness. And that's where prayer is born. Prayer is born when there is a hopelessness and helplessness. That's where the faith begins. Our experience of God begins where we reach to our ends. And the most of us, we don't pray because we think we're okay. And suffering reveals we are fragile. We are not that independent. We are not that powerful. We are not that self-sufficient. And that's the blessing of suffering. And here we need to learn about important thing about prayer. Prayer is not about articulating. Prayer is all about concentrating. Prayer is a neither eloquent nor elegant. The most important thing about prayer is being honest and earnest. By the way, I'm not talking about public prayers like a congregational prayer. For congregational prayer, one must prepare in advance in writing because you are representing everybody and you cannot pray for all in a limited time without a preparation. So in case of a congregational prayer, preparation and articulation actually helps for congregation to concentrate. And for that I am grateful, for our, grateful to our leaders and members who prepare the congregational prayer every week. But when it comes to personal prayer, you don't have to worry about how articulate you are. Forget all about formality. Just cry out to God. You know, today you might be impressed with this beautiful prayer of Jonah, but do you think this is what really Jonah prayed in the fish belt, in the valley of the fish? You know, 
We, we heard that Jonah cried out, shouted, in the midst of engulfing waters, and seaweed wrapped around his head and the, and the deep dive of fish to the roots of the mountain that's the bottom of the sea. Do you think he could utter this kind of prayer? I bet he barely finished the sentence. Help! And they swallowed the, you know, chunk of the you know, sea water. And, uh, you know, you know, Ado, you know, he barely finished Adonai. And then, you know, and then totally upside down. Uh, James Chen is a licensed diver, scuba diver. So ask him whether he could pray in the rapidly changing, you know, air, you know uh, the water pressure. Jonah said, from the deep in the realm of the dead or shore, I call to, for help and you listen to me. You know, God hears our heart more than anything. So just pray out your, your heart, your heart to God and whatever words, incomplete sentence, fragmented sentences, that's okay. Holy Spirit will connect everything. You know, actually great prayers in the Bible were this kind of agonized cries. One of the most famous prayers in the Old Testament, or prayer praying seen in the Old Testament, comes from Genesis chapter 32. This is a very important passage because this is where Jacob became Israel. And the term Israelite is born since then. And then if you know about the story of Genesis chapter 32, Jacob's prayer at the river Jacob was that Jacob fled home after deceiving his, young, his older brother Esau. And they spent the next 20 years at his mother's hometown and they got married and then acquired the wives and wealth and he's now coming back home. And then he heard the news that his brother Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men, that means army. And you don't welcome others with an army. So he knows he's coming to kill me. And verse 23 said, he sent all of his family members crossed the uh, river and he sent all his possessions and Jacob left alone. Back into the Bethel. Those of you know the story of Jacob. He's all left all by himself. That's when God came in the form of a man and wrestled with him till break. Here Bible portrays uh, Jacob's prayer as a wrestling. We're not talking about WWE. We're not talking about choreographed entertainment here. We're talking about die ancient wrestling. And Jacob wrestled. Prayer was so intense. Bible said actually God broke his hip. I don't know. You know my brother broke Achilles' heel and he said it was the most painful year to recover. Hip bone, I don't know what's it like. And that's what the prayer is. Prayer is agonizing, painful. But through that, we express our heart to God. What about, what's the effective prayer that Jesus taught us? Jesus said in the parable of a desperate widow, unfortunate widow in Luke chapter 18, he said prayer without urgency and desperation is not effective. Effective prayer always have urgency and desperation. And that there was a widow who had a little bit of saving left by her husband, but in order to get the saving, she has to go through what? Very unrighteous, uncaring judge who don't care about who doesn't care about anybody, anything, even God. And so she went to him day after day and wore him out until she got the life. And that's the 
except model prayer warrior that Jesus gave to us. About this agonizing prayer, our Lord himself did an agonizing prayer for us. If you look at the Hebrew chapter 5, 7, I love Hebrew chapter 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with a fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence and mission. It, this Hebrew 5, 7 touches my soul because Jesus didn't cry and shed tears for his problem, but my problem. My sin and my crisis made my Lord fervently cry and desperately pray. So prayer is a desperate cry. And one thing I really want to do someday in our church, and I tried, I, I attempted here and there, is that after the message was given, after God spoke through the proclaimed, preached the word, I want to have a time of response. And time of response, I want us to have a pray openly and audibly. You know, Korean churches and a lot of Latin American churches, they do that. But I don't see that in American churches. We tried in our church. I'm the only one who can, you know, say, I, you know, silence. And I feel that we are too cool to pray like that. You know, you know what? Actually, in American evangelical tradition, starting in the mid-19th century in Great Awakening, we had a, this a tradition of a sinner's bench. There was actually a special bench prepared at the beginning of the, at the front of the church, and the, those who want to make a commitment, they come and sit there and they wail and congregation pray together. But today, the worship became a performance. It's like a, I'm sorry, <laughs> performance. And we don't, you know, we say, oh, pastor, and then, you know, praising team, you perform. We just, you know, at the best, we sing along. I hope we cry out to God. And, uh, you know, when you, when we sing a song of dedication, I, I pray that you put your heart in those songs. You know, because this is a prayer. Now, some people might ask, can he pray silently and yet sincerely, without crying out loud and without emotional outbursts? Do we really have to have a suffering to pray God? No, not necessarily. You can pray to God without suffering and crisis. But I have to tell you this. In order to pray without such a praying, it's possible only when you realize you are so poor in spirit. Those who deeply recognize their utter poverty and inadequacy and inabilities before God, they can calmly yet consistently pray with a focus on God's, great, God's grace and mercy. You know, such praying, prayer of a quiet yet wholehearted confession takes a discipline and practice. You know, definitely being a pastor, I receive that blessing because I pray for everyone. And some of you have a nominal prayer request, you know, those things, you know, oh, I need a, I'm sorry, I'm not going there. But some of your prayer requests is really, I feel it, I'm serious. Those times, I realize that I'm utterly helpless. There's nothing I can do except crying out to God with you or for you. This time when I went to Korea, I forgot to bring my uh, power cord to my laptop so I couldn't do my work. 
So even in 14-hour flight to Korea, guess what I did? I prayed for every one of you here. Because 14 hours is a long flight. <laughs> I mean, flying in the coach section with the two people you know, around me, there's not much you can do. Watching a movie, <laughs> I prayed. And then guess what? It was great. I was so, because I didn't pray for 14 hours, by the way. <laughs> But it was really great. I pray. And then, you know, so on the way back, I did it again. You know, while I was there, in my mother's in a, silver, a senior apartment on the basement, there is a prayer, a prayer room. I went there every day. It was great. And I'm sure that God showed you that uh, you are doing well without the Pastor Paul. Amen? Right? Yeah, that's what I pray. God, this is a time for it to shine. This is church. It's not about just one single pastor, but many, many pastors and servants, and this is you know, time for you to show up. Now, second blessing that Jonah experienced in the Valley of the Fish was experiencing the promise and possibility of a salvation. So when Jonah thrown into the water and saw the big fish coming to him, Jonah probably thought like, oh Lord, just drowning will do. Why, why, why do you have to send this big, you know, mean fish? And then when mean fish open the mouth and then you're being, you know, swallowed, you know, engulfed, Jonah said, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'll never see anything, I'll never see uh, uh, anything else. Because he never heard anybody coming alive out of a living fish. And then what happened? A few hours later, he found himself still breathing. Somehow, the acid, stomach acid of fish is not melting him. And that's what I want. And then what? Jonah began to sense God's presence and protection. And Jonah began to realize, I am, God is saving me. God, may, God is sustaining me. And when he, even when the fish went to the bottom of the sea, he thought all the air pressure, well, he was almost couldn't breathe anymore, and all of a sudden he's coming back. And that's why in verse 6, Jonah said, To the roots of the mountain I sank down, but you, Lord my God, brought me my life up from the pit. Here Jonah realized his life was sustained by God. Now to Jonah, every minute is a miracle of God. Every hour is a holy hour. Each breath is like a breath of God. You know, to see life as a gift of God is very important and indispensable to live fruitfully. Let me illustrate that today. You all know Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking was an astrophysicist at Cambridge University and generally considered to be the most brilliant scientist since Einstein because he uh, uh, developed, advanced the general theory of relativity further than Einstein. Unfortunately, Hawkins afflicted with a progressive uh, neuromuscular disease, ALS, or uh, so-called Lou Gehrig disease. It eventually took his life. He was confined to the wheelchair for years, and he could do uh, not much. He lost the ability to speak and communicate by means of a computer that reads his eye movement. Omni Magazine article says, 
He, he is too weak to write, feed himself, comb his hair, fix his glasses. All this must be done for him. Yet this most dependent of all men has escaped the invalid status. He can do little but sit and think. His mind is a blackboard. He memorized the long strings of equations that give a life to his ideas, then dictates the result to his colleagues or secretary, a feat that has been compared to Beethoven's writing entire symphony in his head. Hawking, he confessed that before he became a ill, he had a very little interest in life. He actually called his life a pointless existence resulting from sure boredom. He drank too much and did a very little work. And then he learned that he has an ALS and that was, to, was not expected to live no more than two years. The ultimate effect of that thinness was extremely positive. He claimed to have been happier after he was afflicted than before. How can it be? Hawking said this. When one's expectations are reduced to zero, one really appreciates everything one does have. Let me repeat that. When one's expectations of life are reduced to zero, one really appreciates everything that one does have. Isn't that paradox or irony? That oftentimes we don't appreciate everything unless we become nothing. You know, look at the, all the healthy young people. Are they grateful for the you know, health and uh, you know, healthy body and their, you know, they recover too fast and everything? Stephen Hawking, when he faces continuous physical deterioration and premature death, the whole world assumes a new significance. The beauty of the tree, privilege of a watching sunset, a walk in a park, company of the loved ones, it all takes on meanings. So blessing of ALS that taught Stephen Hawking was actually what Christians call common grace. You know, in Christian tradition, we have two kinds of grace, common grace and special grace. What is a common grace? Common grace, or sometimes called a natural grace, is a grace that God bestowed upon everyone universally through his good creation. For instance, everyone has the same 24 hours. Rich people don't have extra hours than us. They all have the same. And everybody enjoys the same four seasons. Okay, Texas, we have two seasons. And everyone receives the same sunshine and rain. Now, the difference between Jonah and Stephen Hawking was that Jonah knew that God to be the source of his common grace, where Stephen Hawking just appreciated common grace without knowing God. And this critical difference resulted in Jonah moving toward the special grace. What is a special grace? That's the grace that saves those who trust in God. It's the grace of salvation. As soon as Jonah realized that he was living each moment as a present by God's grace, he began to hope for God's salvation in the future. And now, what's the basis of such a assurance or anticipation of a salvation? Twice in verse 4 and 7, he mentioned the holy temple. Holy temple. 
What's about holy temple? If you look at the first king, chapter 8, verse 29 to 34, when Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, basically Solomon asked God that whenever people of Israel pray to God toward this temple, whatever sin they have, God forgive them and save them. And God said, I will do that. That's what Jonah was claiming. Jonah remembers God's promise of forgiveness and salvation through the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that's why verse 4 said, I have banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. You know, when your life is flitting away, your faith and love is being drained fast, how do you restore your hope and your joy? For us, we have something more than Jerusalem temple. We have true temple in Jesus. Amen? How do we know? John chapter 2, 19, Jesus said this, Destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple Jesus has spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recall what he has said. So whenever you are, being, you, you, you are drained and you desperately need God's love and joy, what's the temple that you're looking to? That is a Jesus. When we remember Jesus, he will replace our fear and worry with his love and promise. In Christ, we find the possibility of everything. So here is a, you know, so second point is this. We don't just pray our heart to God. We pray our heart to God in Jesus' name. Jesus' name matters. You know, when we come to God in Jesus' name, just as Jonah came to God with a hope in the Jerusalem temple, we are, asking, we are basically asking God, God, I'm not coming in my own qualification, but I'm coming in your promise and your kindness, demonstrated by your son, Jesus Christ. That's the power of, you know, our prayer in the name of Jesus. There's such a power. In Jesus' name, I come to God. Let me illustrate this more briefly. First time I met my pastor, in, uh, my, pastor uh, my spiritual father and mentor in Venezuela, uh, I was 17 years old, and at the time, we just started a church, and the, one of the church members, they tried to go to America, and they applied for a tourist visa, and back then, a lot of people want to come to, I mean, still now, want to come to America, and whatever, you know, uh, uh, visa, and uh, when they get the tourist visa, they come, they don't leave. They stay. So, getting a tourist visa, uh, it was very hard. So they asked my pastor to write a letter of recommendation, and they took the letter to the consul, and consul was not, said, what is this? Pastor's recommendation will not get you a visa, and then just scoffed at them. So the member came back, and the, so my pastor said, okay, I'll go with you. And I was his chauffeur at the time. So I drove, and I sat in the consul's office, and then this, I still remember that the, general, the American consul said, who are you, sir? And my pastor said, I'm a U.S. citizen, 
I'm a taxpayer and I'm a pastor. First thing he said was, it's a taxpayer. He's tax you know what he's saying? I pay your salary. You are nothing but a civil servant. I'm your employee. So you better listen to what I'm saying. And then, you know, as soon as he said he's a tax, I'm a taxpayer, the, I remember the consuls, you know, there, there's a smoke on his, you know, eye and twinkle is in eye. Guess what? That member got the visa and still lives in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> when we come to Jesus' name, the name of a creator, name of a savior, the lion of Judah and the lamb of God who laid down his life for us. Heaven will shake and God will hear our prayer. Amen? Amen. Let me go to the last blessings. Through the suffering in Sheol or fish's belly, Jonah was awakened to pray and also began to appreciate and anticipate God's promise of salvation. One more blessing Jonah recovered here is a privilege to serve God. And verse 8, Jonah said, Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with the shouts of a grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed before, I will make it good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. In literal Hebrew, it means Yahweh Jeshuel, Jehovah Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. Now, here Jonah, he didn't say he will just offer sacrifice God, but he will offer sacrifice God joyfully and gladly. Because he now recognized that serving God, sacrificing oneself God, is a great, great privilege. And then also earlier in verse 8, he compared himself to idol worshippers. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's you know, love. Actually, this is a, NIV is a very poor translation. In an older translation, they say, those who believe in vain idols, they forsake the true royalty. That is actually a better translation, close to the text. Because uh, turn away in, Greek, in the Hebrew text is a forsake. Forsake is a covenantal term. You are betraying your most basic and highest commitment of a life. You are forsaking. And Jonah was not talking about pagans. Those idol, idol makers, idol, uh, idolaters, he was not talking about pagans. He's talking about Israelites who selectively obey God. That's the problem of Israelites. They obey God only when he served them. They obey God only when it was convenient and reasonable. Whenever it cost them a little bit, they didn't obey God. And that's what Jonah said. Those who desert you, forsake your loyalty to you, because of their own, you know, their own selfishness, they are idol makers. You know, idol worshippers basically they serve themselves through idol, right? They don't actually worship idol; they worship themselves. And Jonah said, "I'll not be like them. I will serve you, not on my terms, but on your words." That's what Jonah is saying. Jonah is actually saying before. I want to be servant of prophet only to the people that I like. People that I didn't like and I Ninevite, I reject, you know, I didn't like to be a prophet, but now I'll be a prophet to anybody you, you send me to. 
And now God is ready to bring back Jonah. And before I come to the conclusion, I want to show you a picture of a pulpit in Polish church. There are many churches I found in that has this uh, 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 fish imagery. This is actually a pulpit. Do you see the uh, uh, pulpit there? There is a microphone in the, in the, what is this? It's actually a fish, right? Can you see? And there is. So the idea is this. The preachers, they should preach like a Jonah, repentant Jonah. They preach whatever God lays in their heart. Truthfully, obediently, and gratefully, they should preach. Pray for forest pulpit that whoever preaches here, preach the same way. Truthful, grateful, and obedient word of God. Now let me close in conclusion. Verse 10. The Lord commanded the fish, it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Let me show you one more picture to illustrate. This picture is depict, depicts that a jo, you know, fish vomiting Jonah. It was a, a, a painted by Herbert Albert. He's an English painter, and uh, he's an interesting painter because he paints with a childlike uh, uh, style. This looks like a third grader <laughs> painted this. And so he, he's known for simplicity. Very interesting thing is that here, do you see the fish on the left? And then do you see Jonah look like what? Child or infant, right? Why do you think he portrayed like this? You know, the fish in the uh, chapter 1, verse 17, fish that swallow Jonah, the, the writer, the storyteller of a book of Jonah, portrayed as a male fish. Whereas the fish that kept Jonah in his inside or belly in chapter 2, he portrayed as a female fish. This is a linguistic device. And he tried to convey this image. That when Jonah enter into the mouth of the fish, that means it's a death. And Jonah staying in the belly of the fish means it's like a being in the womb of a mother. He's a being reborn. And then when he came out of the fish's mouth, it means he's a living again, resurrection. You know what? That's what suffering does to us. You know, suffering makes us die. Suffering makes us die to certain preconceived notions, certain, you know, our ideas die through the suffering. And through suffering, we grow again, and we reborn with a new perspectives and new understanding of God's greater mercy and grace. So, if you are in some kind of suffering, don't be too discouraged. Ask God, Lord, show me how I can die to myself. What is the idea? What's the wrong idea? What's the, the frustration? What, what's the lesson that I should learn from this suffering? Ask God to help you to die. Because when you die in God's way, God will make you reborn in a greater, more beautiful way. Amen? Amen. Now we will have a time of a response and prayer. So we'll try. Do you remember the audible open response time? I will see whether you are too cool to be a, a repentant. So let's all bow down and we will have a 
couple minutes of uh, open prayer time. I want all of us to thank God for, especially for the suffering of Christ. While Jonah suffered because of his own sin, Christ suffered for our sin. While Jonah went to the shore, Christ, for our sake, went down literal hell. So we need to remember Christ's redemptive suffering. When we remember Christ's redemptive suffering, yes, we can be awakened to pray. And we can anticipate it's a saving power every day. And we also appreciate God's call to serve him. So let's pray. <clears throat>